Okay, good evening. Tonight's lecture is entitled A Changing World, the Renaissance and the Reformation. Jewish history did not happen in a vacuum, and we always have to keep in mind events going on in the world at large that impacted the Jews in a major way. One of those huge events that shook up Europe was the Renaissance. On rare occasions, one comes across a period of such dynamic cultural change that it is seen as a major turning point in history. The Renaissance was a time of cultural change, a change from a society that was largely rural, which would begin to become largely urban, although the Industrial Revolution, uh, which will be about 250 years later, really, would really, that part, as far as from rural to urban, would be finally finalized at the time of the Industrial Revolution. A change, change from a society that saw religious matters as the central interest in life to one where the focus was on secular matters. It was a change from medieval society to one that was recognizably modern. So tonight we'll spend a little bit more time than usual um, analyzing secu the secular history. And the reason is because it definitely impacts um, Jewish history in this case. And not only that, it still impacts us to, our very, to this very day. So we're going to focus in particular, at least for now, on the Italian Renaissance. The Italian Renaissance began, began the opening phase of the Renaissance, a period of great, great cultural change in Europe. The word Renaissance means rebirth, and the era is best known for the renewed interest in the culture of classical antiquity after the period of the, which the Renaissance humanists labeled the Dark Ages. We call it the Middle Ages, and they put it in a more pejorative fashion and called it the Dark Ages. The traditional historical view is that the Renaissance suddenly blossomed as a result of the fall of Constantinople in 1453. I mentioned during the last lecture when we discussed Spanish Jewry and the Inquisition, the uh, result of Constantinople finally falling to the Turks, to the Muslims, the, one of the largest, most powerful Christian cities in 1453 falling, becoming Istanbul. Constantinople, which was the center of the Byzantine culture, when that collapses, all of the Greek um, philosophers, historians, cultural figures move to Italy. That's what some historians um, claim. T contemporary historians claim that's way too simplistic. For one thing, knowledge of Greek and Roman culture have really never completely disappeared from the mainland in Europe. It was always in the monasteries. Beyond that, in the High Middle Ages, which was in the 13th century, um, early 14th century, in the German universities they were studying, um, and in the Italian and Swiss universities they were studying these studies. Beyond that, already in the early 14th century, in the, the, the cities of Italy, you had figures such as Dante and Petrarch, who were what you call already on this focusing on classical texts. Thus, the Italian Renaissance was not just a sudden burst with the fall of Constantinople, it was an evolution a rather long evolution and not a sudden outburst. The two defining characteristics of the Renaissance were A, the revival of classical learning with its human-centered 
focus and the amazing developments in arts, particularly plastic arts, painting, and sculpture. Um, both of these were connected and both fed on the same nourishment, the same, as we say in Hebrew, same tzad hashava, the same common denominator. The elevation of the importance of the individual human as essential concern of life. Okay, we'll embellish upon that in a minute or two. That both the focus on art and the focus on study, in fact, one of the first names we call the Renaissance would be humanism. And we'll discuss how that has an effect. There were three crucial factors why Italy was the birthplace and the center of the Renaissance. Firstly, Italy's geographic location. Renaissance Italy was drawing upon the civilizations of ancient Greece and especially Rome. Guess where Italy is located? In ancient Rome, right? Italy, this same Italian Renaissance, they were walking along the streets of Rome. Well, in the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, however you want to refer to it, when the church was all-powerful, in fact, they didn't really focus on Rome that much. They were using the marbles of the ancient Roman, not the Colosseum, but other Roman theaters, other Roman, um, ancient Roman archaeology, and they're using it for their own, you know, in the 10th century, 11th century, for their own streets. They didn't really care about preservation. They weren't that proud of Roman, uh, the Roman culture. As the Middle Ages get, get into, go, get into end, ending and the Renaissance starts, well, they're in Rome. And they have this national fervor. Let's look at our look at let's look at our history, especially. And this is where the, the, with Italy's geographic location being even today, they're bombing Libya. Where do you think the planes are coming from? They're coming from Italy. While well, Italy is close to the Arabic world, and the Arabic world had, to a large extent, kept a lot of the culture of um, the Greek philosophers and ancient Roman uh, authors. And also, when the Byzantine, um, you know, philosophers and the upper crust of Constantinople ran out, they went to Italy. You know, I grew up in Miami Beach. I remember, you know, the Cubans that came to Miami in the 1960s were the upper crust. They were very, very successful, right? You know, you know, people think today immigrants, Mexicans here, well, there are some that are successful, but you see South Florida, there are really a lot of very, very um, top-notch people because they were able to escape Cuba. So who do you think got out of Constantinople immediately when the Turks came conquering people who were able to afford uh, to leave? The rest became Muslims. Okay, what happened to them? They became Muslims. They lived in Istanbul. Okay, number two, the reason why is the printing press is created and built in Italy. We're going to see that the printing press is huge. We cannot imagine the world before and after the printing press. Because literacy, until the 15th century, was less than 1% in Europe. And, the, the, and that less than 1% was almost exclusively in the hands of the church. Not even in the hands of the nobility. Most nobles were ignorant, illiterate. They certainly didn't have a hand in any text. With the printing press, and we have a tremendous increase in literacy, and reading actually what's now becoming an extinct thing called books. <laughs> Right, today, you know, books are becoming, we're going backwards. Everything's electronic. Um, 
I, I, I kid you not, um, you know, I, I mentioned once uh, a phrase I heard from a, a prominent rabbi, that this is a generation of, of information and no knowledge, because people don't read anymore. They know a lot of little things, they don't know anything in depth anymore, because they don't read. Um, we can thank the Jews for Shabbos, because we'll always need uh, books, you can't use the internet on Shabbos. But today people don't read anymore. You, you look at even teenagers today, or, or people in college, universities, they're much less read than 30, 40 years ago. They may know a lot more Wikipedia facts, but they know a lot less core uh, knowledge. Well, the printing press would have a tremendous effect. It would make books available to all. It would have a plus and a negative, right? Because people believe the written word. It's unbelievable. Just to, when I speak of the printing press, I get questions all the time. And people, I read this rabbi. It's like people read something and they believe it. It doesn't make a difference what it is. That, you know, they can read the most bizarre things that are, are untrue, but I read it. They read it. it also, when people read something, they don't ask who the author, the qualifications. You know, people ask me questions in Judaism from people who are ignoramuses. People who don't know the first thing about, uh, who can't read a core text themselves. They probably cut and paste other people's articles on the internet. And that's what they're reading. The, the people who I know don't know who read Talmud, but they're people going to read what they say and they believe it. And any, in any topic, in any topic is like that, not only in Judaism, right? If people tend to believe what they read. They take it for, at face value, they put it as a thought in their head, they read it somewhere, and it, and it becomes a much more, it makes much more of an impression than the spoken word. The written word is a very, very powerful tool, whether it's for propaganda, whether for it's for pure knowledge and good, for the good and the bad. People tend to, f- to believe what's written, they give it more credence, more um, importance in their, in their own eyes. And the printing press will have a large play. And Renaissance Italy, like the ancient Greeks, paradoxically, thrived in an urban culture, in a vibrant economy of the city-state. I mentioned there are only few, the few largest cities in Europe in the, middle, in the Middle Ages going into the Renaissance were not in England and not in France. They were in Italy. Florence and Venice were the largest cities in Europe, let alone, let alone in, uh, in, the, in the, questionably in the world. These were cities of 100,000 people in the 16th century, 15th century, is unheard of in, in Europe, when, when 90-something percent was rural. So Italy had these large city-states, and that helped in two ways. Firstly, the smaller and more uh, intimate environment of the city-state get a change of information, people getting together. It allowed for more fertile minds, a lot of more cross-information, more of, an, more of a, a pursuit of it as well. And number two, the, cities, the Italian city-states were wealthy. Okay? And in order to have the ability to think deeply, to sponsor things of culture, you need money. Hey, this is not just unique to the 16th century. You look at today. People who are working 18 hours a day are not reading books. They're not worried about anything but getting to sleep, eating and drinking, and, and paying their, their electric bill. Hey, so the, the, Itali- the Italian city states were relatively wealthy. The Italian Renaissance would, was generally assumed to uh, have lasted to the mid-16th century when Ita- Italy, due to disunity and larger uh, geopolitical realities was under constant attack by, from the north, but the Renaissance would, would spread north and have the northern Renaissance. Now, there are four patterns of thoughts that come into the Renaissance, which we live with to this very day. 
If you want to understand the secular world of the Western world, it really starts with the Renaissance. Okay, as I mentioned, the Renaissance was one of these events, these, these historical periods, which changed the reality of the world. Number one was secularism. The word secular, if anyone you know, doesn't know, it means of this world. Secular, mundane, of this world. Okay? Medieval civilization was a very religious world. And we've discussed that previously. Um, and it was concerned with the next world. It was concerned. It was dominated by the church. Um, the new economic and uh, political horizons that came with the Renaissance took people much, to make people much more interested in this world. Okay? People in the Renaissance, you know, in the ancient world, people viewed life, whether they lived it or not, but their starting point was, well, this world is not that important. What's really important is the next world. It doesn't mean that people lived up to that ideal, but if you want to know what was in the air, it was the next world. With the Renaissance becoming a tremendous focus on this world, okay? And we'll discuss how art, and we'll, we'll, sh- we'll highlight that the, perhaps in, its, in the greatest way, Number two is humanism. Humanism, the early uh, Renaissance um, greats were actually Catholics, almost all of them. Erasmus, Plutarch, they were ca- ca- Catholic. Uh, um, Ruchelin, they were all Catholic um, theologians, but they also were humanists. And what does humanism mean? Humanism is focusing on humanity. <laughs> it's a focus on man. We're no longer just going to focus on God. We're going to focus on man. So along this line, Renaissance philosophers and even theologians started looking at humans as great, intelligent creatures. You don't see this, this idea of the greatness of man. Right? You see very little of the greatness of man in the Dark Ages, in the Catholic-run Europe. You see that man is lowly, sinful, now, what's the great potential, man? But for the grace of God, they're not going to be great. All of a sudden, there's a focus on man. We are intelligent. We are questioning, and we'll see even perhaps skeptical. Right? We're not just mindless pawns or, or pawn, uh, in the hands of the kings or the church. Man will become important. Number three, which will take humanism even farther, was individualism. Okay, the more communal group-oriented society and the mentality of the Middle Ages. Um, gave way to a belief in the individual. Okay? It, the, the focus on individualism freed up people to break the tide, to be a little bit like a non-conformist. You don't have to be like everyone else. And not only that, the individual talent was great. Leonardo da Vinci, who was a genius of epic proportions, could never have been anything of the same stature in, in the 12th century that he was in the 15th century. Okay? Um, besides Leonardo's genius, he was a very, he had individual flair. And the interesting thing is, with the Renaissance, you see for the first time, people signing their names on their paintings. Hey, they were, that was them. It wasn't, nowhere, do, nowhere until the Renaissance do you ever see someone sign their name onto the paintings. They're putting themselves into it. Okay? The communal guilds, which were famous in the, the, the feudal ages, even the middle class, they would give away, and you'd start to see, especially in Italy, and the Jews would have a large part in this as well, capitalism. <laughs> okay? Capitalism is not socialism. I'm sure you, anyone who's heard the conservative attack on Obama, you have to be an individualism. You can't just care about guilds and, so, and, and larger groups. You have to have individual initiative to be a capitalist. Well, 
capitalism would really start to gain wind in the Renaissance with a focus on individualism. And number four was skepticism. Skepticism, which promoted a curiosity and a questioning of authority, was largely an outgrowth of the other three Renaissance ideals. The secular spirit of the age put the humanists at odds with its church on its purely religious values and explanations of the universe. Okay? Humanism and individualism, with their belief in the ability of human re- and reason, raised challenges to the church. Um, and these things led to, th- uh, this skepticism led to the Protestant Reformation, which we'll discuss. It led to the age of exploration. People want to see what's out there in the world. We don't believe the world is flat. Let's go and see what's out there. Right? Let's see a world that we're not going to take for granted anymore. It would plant the seeds for the scientific rev- revolution. And of course, it would shake um, many preconceived notions. The literature and learning of the Renaissance. Okay, All of this changes in the Renaissance. Before this time, there was not what you called, if you would have looked at, we're not saying majority, between 99% of Europe. 99%, but for the Jews. The Jews were always literate. It's unbelievable. You Jewish, the average age, the average Jew, throughout this time was not only really fluent in the texts, the, 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 the wives, the children, everyone were learning, but the majority of you were, were, were illiterate, and they certainly they did study was not literature, it was not mathematics. Right? They listened to a few church lessons, and that was about it. There was very, 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 very little literature that was, that's out there from. Um, pre-Renaissance ages. I mean, you have Milton, you know, pa- right? you have Chaucer, you have a few people, but very little on the, on the mainland. So with the, with the Renaissance, there comes a difference of focus. They looked at the ancient classical authors, such so as Cicero, to teach them how to polemics and arguing and discussion. They, they changed the curriculum to, to almost the mid-20th century, which was philosophy, literature, mathematics, history, and politics. Those are all more uh, innovations. Political science was never a study until an individual called Machiavelli would write The Prince, and he, you know, gave Stalin his uh, his ideas of how he st- how an autocrat stays in power. You do anything that you need to to stay in power. It also had you had Valdisio um, Castiglione's The Courtier, which talked about the Renaissance man. Until then, if you were a noble, you didn't care about being edified and refined. These books start talking about what a Renaissance man is. You didn't pick your teeth in public, and things that we think about today. You know, you don't pick you know other body parts, your ears, your nose. Well, I, you 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 don't belch in public. You you're, you're a man of many many knowledges. You're courteous. You're 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 friendly. That's what a Renaissance man was. Art is perhaps the most famous. Most people when they, when they look at the Renaissance, who do they think of? Michelangelo, Raphael, right? All of great Leonardo da Vinci, art in the Middle Ages, art was plain. Art was dull. It wasn't a focus on man. You see very little figurines of man, and what you did look like a cartoon. Okay, there was not a focus on how man looks. If you look at Renaissance art, if you look at Renaissance sculptures, you'll see a tremendous focus on the details of everything, on backgrounds, on perspective, on proportion, which were not at all found in pre-Renaissance um, art. They, uh, they say that Leonardo da Vinci's paintings 
were so detailed that the botanists can literally see differences in the flowers and the thistles and the trees. Chaim should try this out. See if you can pick it up from Leonardo's art. Everything they can see was so detailed of all of the details, which was in the Middle Ages, very, very little, little of that. Science actually has little significant advancement. However, one great thing comes from Renaissance, and that is that Aristotle loses his place. Because if you would have looked from the, the, the church was pretty much embedded with Aristotle, and they're wed to Aristotle, and Aristotle's theories, when he came to skepticism, people questioned him for the first time in a significant way. Okay? Um, this would be a big problem for the Catholic Church, because they had accepted a lot of dogmatic of Aristotle and Plato's views, including, you know, that their, the Earth is the center of the universe, things like that. They literally had put it as part of church um, dogma. Well, the discrediting of Aristotle would not only have a great effect on secular Europe, but would have an effect on Judaism, because, as I mentioned, people like Maimonides had gave a, given a focus to Aristotle as well. And Aristotle had a large... Um, following in the Jewish world that would end with the Renaissance. Okay? The the um, focus on definitive philosophy and the rationality of the Torah, because you look at rationalist Maimonides approaches, we have to explain every detail. Now Rambam was coming to help many Jews who were lost. He, you could, Rambam's intention was to help secular Jews, middle aged secular Jews, who were questioning things based on the world around them. Um, the beginning of this trend away from Aristotle was you already see by the Akedah, Rabbi Yitzhak Arama, who was born in Spain in 1420, died in Naples, Italy in 1494. His work, Rabbi Yitzhak Arama's Akedah Yitzhak, the binding of Yitzhak, is a philosophical commentary on the Torah. But he rejected completely Aristotle's notion that faith must conform to logic, um, and stress the supremacy of Torah tradition, spiritual faith, and emotion over any system of logic. The Torah is the essence of Judaism, he taught, and the fundamentals of its faith are deeper and wider than those encompassed by any form of rigorous Aristotelian reasoning, which means it's not false. Of course, we don't believe in God, you know, based on emotion. Every Jew, we believe in God because it's rational and logical. But there's a big difference of saying, I know God created the Torah, and I give the Torah, and we understand that basic trying to explain every commandment. I have to know, right? I have to know, understand every detail. Whenever I understand, I, I question. Right? If you were to look at the Aristotelian world, everything, they were trying to rationalize everything and anything. Right? Why, do we, why don't we come at some passage? There must be a rational reason. Why don't we do this? There must be a rational reason. As opposed to saying, okay, we all believe in God. God obviously gave us the Torah. So even if I can't explain it 100%, I'm going to do it with all my heart. Can you imagine husbands or spouses both and forth my spouse, I understand what they're going to say, then I'll, then I'll help them out and I'll do what they want. But if I can't truly fathom it, I'm not going to do it with my whole heart. There's something lacking in that. And that Kata says, what are people going ahead and trying to rationalize everything? Once you know there's God, and once you know that we're the chosen people, what, what do you have to explain every detail? Of course you want to understand every detail. No one wants to be ignorant, but it's not. the point is, is even if we can't fathom its death, even if it's something that God gives us because He wants it for whatever reason, which we don't understand, we know there's God. You know, we, not, no one's saying not to understand how God created the world and how why God chose the Jewish people. But to understand everything, the Maral Prague, the great 16th century Maral Prague, who lived from 1526 to 1609, he was a good friend of Copernicus. So in all of his works, and especially 
his great philosophical treatises, Eber HaGolan Gvuras Hashem, he blends logic, unlimited faith in the spirituality and the divinity of the Talmud and Kabbalistic mysticism into a tapestry of Jewish philosophical thought and direction, and bashes and utterly ends the focus on Aristotle. Okay, From the 16th century onwards, Aristotle is a non-sequitur as far as Jews is concerned. You don't find anyone in the mainstream. You, know, you can always bring proofs from some you know, person on the sidelines. But the mainstream Judaism, no, there's no focus on Aristotle. The Gentile world largely rejects it. Immanuel Kant, Kant in the 19th century would completely <laughs> end the, the focus on Aristotle. What were the Jews like in Italy during the Renaissance? You know, classical Italian Jewry um, was actually, it's not Sephardic, and it's not Ashkenazi. Italian Jews, actually, the first community came in the time of the destruction of the Temple. And there was, has been a continual community in Italy of their own Nusach right? So you have the ancient Italian Jewish community. Then you had Ashkenazim come in the 15th century as Germany became more and more unfriendly. And later in the 17th century, after the Chalmaniki pogroms, even more Ashkenazi Jews would come. And the third group would be Sephardic Jews, who came in waves after the Spanish Inquisition. Don Isaac Arbarbanel, right, we discussed last, in the last lecture, the treasurer of King Ferdinand and Isabella, the head of Spanish Jewry. When he leaves Spain and during the Inquisition, he goes to Naples and gets a position in the court of Naples. Okay, Jews would come in thousands to other cities in Italy, and some places they'd be more accepted than others. Eventually, uh, and we'll discuss why a little bit later, they will be put into what's called a ghetto. Because remember one thing, Italy, as far, even though it was the home of the Renaissance, there was a kulturkampf, there was a battle of cultures there. You also had a heavy church influence there. Even, even with all of the Renaissance fl- flair and flavor, you had the church. And the church pushed Jews in the middle of the 16th century into ghettos. Okay, this is going to be largely a product of the Counter-Reformation, which we discussed. So in 1555, the, the Pope, uh, with a bull, put Jews in the, in the ghetto in Venice. Okay, um, Of course, the merchants of Venice, anyone who read Shakespeare... You can see that there. Until that point, Jews were not viewed as a community. They were viewed as Jews, individual Jews, but not as a community. Then they put all of the Jews could only live in a ghetto. Now, certainly, um, being put in a ghetto, we don't thought, we shouldn't think like a ghetto. We, people here at ghetto usually think of Warsaw, nineteen forty. Okay, that's what people think of ghetto. The ghetto in Italy uh, was not Warsaw, nineteen forty. It was certainly at a disadvantage. They were put into overcrowding because you can only buy in a certain area. Now, when you can only buy in a certain area, so what happens? It's high prices. It's only a limited area within the city where you can live. Um, and there was a nightly curfew. You left. So you couldn't just go out at night uh, leave the ghetto. But, nevertheless, Jewish scholarship and culture flourished in the ghetto. Certainly, Kabbalah was very, very big in Italy. But even in the secular uh, field, Italian Jew- Jews were very, very cultured. Okay, if you look at the what the ladies learned, what the men learned, they had a tremendous um, 
influenced by the world of Italy. And that would affect the Jews of the Renaissance. Part of the new education of the Renaissance was a renewed interest in Judaism by Gentiles. Right? If they're looking at classical Roman texts, classical Greek texts, they're start looking at classical Jewish texts. Particularly some of the Christian theologians would go ahead and start looking at the Bible. Kabbalah now today people think of Madonna or some other losers like Lohan, I don't know, but her, you know, uh, you know, every, every perverse individual who wants to justify their lives gets into Kabbalah. It's a, an abusive Kabbalah today. Now I'm going to have a separate lecture on Kabbalah and Shabtai Tzvi. I'll be in two lectures from now. But in those days, the, you know who focused on the Kabbalah? Theologians. Okay? The greatest Christian theologians were, many of them were Kabbalists. Rabbi Vadya Sforno, Sforno is one of the great commentators on the Bible, it's in almost every Chomish you'll find, any Mikros Kedos, you'll find Rabbi Vadya Sforno. He lives in Bologna. He had a Chavrusa with the Cardinal of Bologna, the Cardinal, the chief Catholic head of Bologna, who slurred him. And there's also the probably ranked number two humanist, R- Ruchelin, Johann von Ruchelin, his Chavrusa. For, for years, was the Sforno. Okay? Um, this created the ire of Erasmus. Erasmus was known as perhaps the greatest, Rushlo was the second greatest, Erasmus was considered the greatest of the Italian uh, humanists. He blasted that the fact that almost all of his friends were using Kabbalah and the Talmud. He felt it was... Um, and it's not a Catholic thought. So he was very upset, not only by Ruchelin, but people like Pico di Mirandella, who wrote what's viewed as the, the uh, Manifesto of the Renaissance. His or, 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 um, orientation on the dignity of man was basically, a large part of it was Kabbalah and Talmud, because he viewed it as contributing to understanding Christian thought. If you understand the Kabbalah, you can understand how God created the world. He actually viewed it as a tremendous wisdom. He put a lot of Kabbalah, and he himself learned with the great rabbi, Elijah de Megiddo, who was a rabbi from Crete. So we have one of the greatest um, humanists, one of the greatest people of the Renaissance, Pico, focusing on um, focusing on Kabbalah and the Talmud. Now, even though Pico would praise Kabbalah and be interested in the Talmud, all of these people, even though they loved the, he- the, the Judea- Jewish scholarship, they didn't love the Jews, okay? Not, that's, that's, the, the, the Pico himself praised the Spanish Inquisition, right? Machiavelli, he was he was enthralled with the, with the Spanish Inquisition. Machiavelli said this was brilliant, brilliant, you know, political science by the you know the, the heads of Spain to, to to get all the Jewish money. That's how you rule a country, okay? Erasmus uh, was was a, was a true anti-Semite, okay? He viewed the, 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 the Jews as legalistically off base. He blamed the Jews for the Peasants' War in the 16th century in Germany. And he, he, wa- he was a, a, a critic of almost anything you can think about Judaism. Whereas his contemporary and probably number two humanist, Ruchlin, def- defended not only Jewish scholarship and advocated it, but defended the Jews as well. But even Ruchlin, who had had a charusa from with the Sforno, who was a great defender of the Jews, one of the people who defended the Jews against, and I've said this many times, the greatest danger from Jews in the exile are other Jews. Okay? This is a fact. We discuss this in Spain. To this day, to this day, you go to any college campus in the country, 
Look who the most Jews for Palestine are. Most people for, Pal- people for Palestine are Jews. Okay? I mean, Tammy Benjamin always says, told me a couple years ago in Santa Cruz, they had Palestine Apartheid Day, and seven of the nine speakers were Jews. Right? You go to Berkeley, you go to Stanford, see the people on top, I can tell you in the University of Pennsylvania, the people who are running these pro-Palestine groups, the people who, who denigrate Judaism today, the greatest denigrators are Jews. Well, there's a guy named Johannes Pfefferkorn, who lived in the 16th century, who's an apostate Jew, who basically had a crusade throughout Europe, through, the cent- through Central Europe, Holy Roman Empire and Italy to get all the Talmuds burned. Accusing the Talmud of sorcery and witchcraft and, you know, coming after Judaism. And the person most responsible for taking on Pfefferkorn was Ruchelin. And Ruchelin himself, um, you know, like today he was, you have Chomsky and Finkelstein. <laughs> so, you know, those, you know, Ruchelin himself, um, not, you know, no Finkelstein. Uh, Ruchelin himself, um, was the defender of the Jews. But even Ruchelin, he still advocated for conversion for the Jews. He used to felt that you can't attack the Jews of Judaism, but of course you want to advocate for conversion. Right? These were not our best friends. The Renaissance in Italy, we had also um, put this skepticism, humanism, individualism into some of the, of the sages of Italy. And you have really bizarre um, individuals come to the, to the fray in Italian Jewry, which were partially responsible that you never, in the 18th or 19th century, you don't have great Italian sages anymore. Because you had real leaders who were, I wouldn't call them charlatans, but off the beaten track. Like really off, and you can't propagate, nothing, Judaism doesn't last when it's not real. Okay, look at anything, you want to see something real, see where it leads four generations from now. Okay, that's the greatest litmus test. What are you going to mean four generations from now? I, they had all kinds of ideas which were not in the mainstream. One of them, his name was Azaria de Rossi. Azaria de Rossi, like many Italian sages, was a doctor. He was a doctor in Mantua in the 16th century. He was descended from a Jewish family that came in the time of the Roman uh, de- de- defeat of the temple. So he was in Italy for 1600 years, his family. His family was called Azaria min ha'adubim, from, from the red, right? Ace of red. So he was family who had been in Rome for generations. He put a lot of this skepticism, this, this Renaissance fervor into his works. His most famous work was called Mu'ur Enayim. Okay? Which literally means the light of the eyes. In, in Hebrew, light of the eyes. When my eyes see, I'm gonna say. So in the book, it's a very interesting book. You know, he first talks about Philo. Anyone Philo we discussed was, uh, First century BCE, sage in Alexandria, Egypt, really, you know, very a culture Jew, and a lot of very interesting ideas. He actually attacks Philo for making too many allegories in the Bible, and not true, and has a whole attack on Philo. And he goes through a lot of the Jewish history, but then he has a scientific understanding of the Talmud. And he starts questioning certain things. The Talmud, well, this story can't be true, because I don't believe this story, and I don't believe this story, you know. So, I, as you can imagine, that did not win him the favor of many of his uh, contemporaries. Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, tried to put him in cherem, and he actually had had it in process when he passed away. The Maharal, uh, Miprag himself, heavily criticized the Rosario de Rossi. 
Um, and his work to this day is not read, but at the time, it heavily affected the people around him, right? The leaders affect the, the flock. Okay? The second was a more interesting person named Emmanuel of Rome. Emmanuel of Rome was actually a little bit earlier. He was in the mid-14th century. And Emmanuel um, was very poetic. He wrote, he was, in fact, there are Italian sonnets talking about Emmanuel, this Jewish guy from Rome. And he wrote lots of sonnets and poems which were erotic, um, as well as, you know, biblical. But he affected a lot of the flavor of Italy. Um, concomitantly in Italy, there were some other great sages who were what we call mainstream sages, the Maharami Mipadawa, the Mari Mintz, and the Yochanan Shabbos. They would be the leaders um, going forward. Okay. One of the greatest results of the Renaissance was the Reformation. Okay. The spirit of skepticism really challenged the authority of the church. Now, I, I was saying this to someone the other day. Would you really study our Catholicism? It's a very illogical, uh, very, very illogical. I mean, we discussed this about Christianity. If you even look in, in our world today, Catholicism in every Western country is going down. It is spreading in places like Africa, where you can sell them anything because they're not really literate, or in parts of South America. But if you look at the numbers of Catholicism, and certainly lapsed Catholics, I mean, when I was in, in an Ivy League school, the Catholics didn't know how, didn't know how to speak. And they, they, all of their ideas were very, very shaky, and they, their, their education was also, don't ask, right? Don't ask too much, right? You're not, we don't ask questions. If you ask a question, you're questionable, <laughs> right? We're, it's the opposite of Judaism. We want questions, right? We want real answers, though, also. Um, the Protestant Reformation would really pave a completely new patterns of thought in social, poli- political, economic, and scientific matters, Okay? What brought it about? It wasn't only the Renaissance. Simply put, by the 16th century, the church in Rome was very, very corrupt. Okay, The church was rich, it was powerful, it was unquestioned for generations. And to quote the famous English historian, politician, writer, Lord Action, power tends to corrupt... Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the church by the 15th century, 16th century, was absolutely corrupt. Okay? Rolling in wealth. The church built edifices, fielded its own armies, and sunk deeper and deeper really into immorality, materialism, and decadence. Just, I mean, if you would just, you can't even believe this, that 1492, the same year as the Inquisition, the Pope of the Catholic world was a, who bought his way in there was Alexander the Sixth. Okay, <laughs> Alexander the Sixth was not only not celibate, which several of the popes were not before him. He was the ultimate Renaissance lover. He put a picture on top of his bedroom of his girlfriend dressed as Mary, right, and had illegitimate kids. Which you know, I think the Prime Minister of Italy today is quite famous for this, right? Well, he put the Prime Minister to shame. He had illegitimate kids, which several of them after him became popes of popes of, of, of the church. So you have a, here you have a church which says celibacy, and the popes are not only adulterers, but their children are becoming popes like that, and they're buying their way in there. 
Okay, one of the famous books uh, of the uh, the, re- the Renaissance, uh, of the early Renaissance, was Giovanni Boccaccio's The Cameron. He has a, 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 pa- a, a part of that where he talks about a Catholic bringing his Jewish friend Abraham. He's convinced if he brings Abraham to Rome, this Abraham the Jew will convert. And he talks about schlepping Abraham to, to Rome. And he gets to Rome and he's, he just revolted. And he says, this is what you call, this is the most, the, your leaders are corrupt, they're promiscuous, they're immoral. And this is what the guy publishes, right? Because that's what they were. And he, he used the Jew to, to point out in this book. The other major problem for the church was we just mentioned earlier tonight, and that's the printing press. Because, believe it or not, for the Catholic Church, going into the 16th century, the most dangerous book in the world was the Bible. There is nothing more dangerous to the monks and the, 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 the Franciscans and Dominicans than the Bible. They would go to all ends to make sure that the masses did not get the Bible. They burnt people alive for, tra- for translating word for word the Bible. Okay? Well, why didn't they want people to read the Bible? Because they, was, they were empowered and they had they want to ask people asking questions. I mentioned that once the Bible gets translated, believe it or not, people start to question lots of things. Okay? Um, look at source number one. Despite its anxiety to save a man's souls from the per, uh, perdition of earthly pursuits in order to preserve it for salvation of life after death, the medieval church insulated pupils from the dangerous contamination of scriptures. Only those entering holy orders were allowed to study theology and delve into holy writ. Unsupervised, independent exploration of the Bible was tantamount to heresy. And only clerics in good standing, and only part of the church was able to study the Bible, because they only had it in Latin, and they only taught Latin to a select few were prepared to expound scripture from a Latin text incomprehensible to the Christian masses. In 1506, the church undertook one of its greatest and grandest and most expensive projects. That was the building of a, 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 a St. Peter's Basilica, which would take 150 years, until about 20 years ago, it was the largest church in the world. This project would cost a fortune. Okay, and even for a very wealthy church, it put them into debt, kind of like our country is today. Okay, um, it was major fundraising. This is always the case because the church had unlimited taxes. You can tax and tax and tax, but if you spend more than you tax, you're gonna end up in debt. We should tell it to our governments. So Pope Sixtus, Sixtus the Fourth fundraising campaign went tremendously. They used all kinds of methods to fundraise. Right? And they tried to sell anything they could. Right? They were the biggest sellers. So there's a famous Dominican monk, Johann Tetzel, who used to always say, as soon as the coin of the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You want to get out of purgatory? Give us some money. Right? Give us, not only could you get out of purgatory, they started selling relatives. Your grandfather, we're going to get him out of purgatory. Give to the charity box. And yet, all kinds of charlatans going on raising money for the church in non-kosher ways. And I didn't think it was non-kosher, but non-kosher in their own ways. Um, this bothered a very young priest who 
really had, you know, was sincerely at his own level looking for what did, what did God want from him. This young priest was a German priest named Martin Luther, who was so bothered seeing the Pope of the Catholic Church being an adulterer, seeing people collecting for the Church by selling indulgences and saying that you can do whatever you want in this world, because that's what they said, right? Just give indulgences, you're freed from purgatory. Didn't make a difference of your character, didn't make a difference you did, give a few bucks, you're, you're good to go. Okay? <coughs> and ultimately, he came up with his own theory of the grace of God. It's only God's indulgence, not your own money. And he put his 95 thesis on the All Saints Church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. Okay? Now, the 95 thesis was basically an attack on many of the church policies, practices, and immoral, uh, uh, immoral uh, doings. The church, he was summoned uh, to Rome. He was a young, up-and-coming, they know who he was. He was summoned to, to, to Rome and he refused, proclaiming, here I stand and I can do not otherwise. Eventually, they put him in excommunication. Really, had this been a hundred years before, this would have been a local squabble, and we none of in this in this room would have probably heard of Martin Luther. However, as mentioned, 50, 60 years before, there's something called the printing press that was created. Okay? Just like the revolutions in Egypt would not have been possible without Twitter and Facebook, Martin Luther's revolution would not have been possible without the printing press. Because the printing press made his 95 Theses viral. They went throughout. And once this local dispute went to the masses, you really, that roof began to fall down. Because modern Luther's new religion, which is called Protestantism. Why Protestantism? To protest. To publicly declare otherwise. Which is actually um, a letter from princes of the Lutheran church. Uh, who were nobles who did that inspire in 1529. They had a letter of protest to the Catholic Church in defense of uh, Luther. They became very popular. And remember this. If you're a nobles, if you're a nobles, and the church is the biggest landowner in Europe, and you owe money to the church, well, within a few years, almost all of northern Europe would become Protestant. It was great. It was a, besides the corruption of the church, it was a great profit maker. Luther had immediate allies, because the nobles, their biggest opposition was the church. They took over all the church lands in the process. There were other factors in play. Right? Because the church, all those lands in northern Germany, Scandinavia, who even got them? The church owned land all over the place. It went straight to the nobles. Okay? And they backed Luther. This would set the, the ground for one of the most bloody wars until World War I. That was the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, where the Protestants and the Catholics would duke it out. There would be many, many more factors in play, but we'll leave it there for now. But what it did to the, the Thirty Years' War is it solidified the Protestant Reformation as a permanent fixture in Europe. Right? It ended in a stalemate. Okay? The Protestants would control most of Northern Europe. The Catholics would have most of the South, as a general rule. Okay? Um, Luther and the Jews. At first, there's almost Martin Luther number one and Martin Luther number two. There's the first part of Martin Luther's life and the second part of Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther, at first criticized the church's treatment of the Jews. He criticized the church in general, and he felt 
that if the church would just be friendly to the Jews, they would realize the errors of their way. If the church would just give them the red carpet, they would come in droves to convert. In already in 1514, he spells this out in a letter to a reverend, Spalatin. That's three years before his 95 thesis. He says, just, we'll be nice to them. In 1519, Luther comes against the Justinian Code. Right? He wrote, absurd theologians defend hatred for the Jews. What Jew would consent to enter our ranks when he sees the cruelty and enmity we, we wreak on them, that in our behavior towards them we resemble, uh, we less resemble Christians than beasts? Right? If we're nice to the Jews, they'll love us. Well, it happens to be at some level he's right. Right? More Jews have converted to Christianity in our generation simply through intermarriage and apathy because they're able to assimilate today. Right? You put a gun to someone's head, they, a, they pull back, but everyone's very sweet and nice. There's a pull for it. Now, in those days, the Jews were a lot more knowledgeable than a secular Jew is today, so it didn't happen. <coughs> but in the beginning, Luther really did believe this. Look at source number two. This is a 1523 essay that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. If I had been a Jew and seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, obviously, I can imagine the Catholic Church didn't appreciate that, I would soon sooner have become a hog than a Christian. They have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than deride them and seize their property. When they baptize them, they show them nothing of Christian doctrine or life, but only subject them to popishness and mockery. If the apostles who were also Jews had dealt with us Gentiles, as we Gentiles deal with the Jews, there would never have been a Christian among the Gentiles. When we are inclined to boast of our position as Christians, we should remember that we are but Gentiles, or the Jews are the lineage of Christ. We are aliens and in-laws. They are blood relatives, cousins, and brothers of our Lord. Therefore, if one is to boast of flesh and blood, the Jews are actually nearer to Christ than we are. If we really want to help them, we must be guiding our dealings with them, not by papal law, but by the law of Christian love. We must receive them cordially and permit them to train and work with us, that they may have the occasion and opportunity to associate with us, hear our Christian teaching, and witness our Christian life. If some of them should prove stiff-necked, what of it? After all, we ourselves are not good Christians either, but if we love them and welcome them, they'll most certainly convert. And eventually, this will happen in the 19th century, a method lecture for the future, where Jews will have lack of knowledge, lack of knowledge, and be confronted with a more open Christian society, and there will be very, very negative repercussions because of that, which we see to our day. The Jews of the 16th century were knowledgeable, and they knew what it meant to be a Jew, and they were proud of that, and they couldn't imagine anything but that. So Luther got almost, no, he had two converts uh, in his day, or one or two converts, whatever it was, and he starts to become infuriated. He thought just like Germany, northern Germany in particular, would become completely Protestant, the Jews would have followed suit. If the Catholics left that corrupt church, certainly the Jews would become as well, and he gets more and more angry. By the, towards the end of his life, Luther becomes perhaps arguably one of the greatest anti-Semites in history. So much so that Josel Rosenheim, who was a great Jewish leader, lived in 1480 to 1554, right, who was constantly helping the Jews, he was the ultimate Stalin. 
Stalin was the Jews to help out, right? He was a political kingmaker in a certain way. So he wrote in his memoirs, this is in his memoirs, that this, their situation, their negative situation, was due to that priest whose name was Martin Luther. May his body and soul be bound up in H-E-L-L, hell, uh, who wrote and issued many heretical books in which he said whoever would help the Jews was doomed to perdition, perdition right? And whoever helped the Jews was going to, to, to purgatory. Who can help the Jews? They don't convert. They deny our Lord. In 1543, the new Martin Luther wrote concerning the Jews and their lies. Listen to this. What shall we do with this damned, rejected race of Jews since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing? We cannot tolerate them. Even if we do not wish to share their lives, curses and blasphemy, perhaps we can spare a few of them from the fire and flames. Let me give you honest advice. Now he'll go on for paragraphs. I'm going to tell you what Luther's honest advice for the Jews is. One, burn all synagogues. Two, destroy Jewish holy books. Three, forbid rabbis to teach. Four, destroy Jewish homes. Five, ban Jews from the roads and markets. Six, forbid Jews to make loans. Seven, seize Jewish property. Eight, force Jews to do hard labor. Nine, expel Jews from Christian towns. We'll see soon who will carry this out in the future. I don't have to be a rocket scientist to see who's going to quote Luther and do everything he just said of these nine things. Several months after publishing On the Jews Are Lies, Luther actually compares the Jews to the devil. Look at source number three. This is in of the knowable name, the Shemam Mephorish, and the Generations of Christ. Here in Wittenberg, in our parish church, there is a sow, a sow carved into the stone under which young lie young pigs and Jews who are sucking. Behind the sow stands a rabbi who is lifting up the right leg of the sow. This is a pig. Raises beyond, behind the sow and bows down and looks with great effort into the Talmud under the sow as if he wanted to read and see something most difficult and exceptional. No doubt they gain their shame and force in that place. There's a famous pictures the 16th century of Jews sucking the, pig, the milk of a pig, right? That, Luther is one of the people who made that, popularized that. In the last four sermons of his life, in February 18, 1546, Luther preached four sermons. One of them was his final warning to the Jews. And this is like, you know, you know Hitler's last speech? The last speech he recorded the night he committed suicide, he blamed international Jewry. Right? After he had gassed and murdered six million Jews, he blamed international Jewry for all the ills in the world. Luther's last speech, you have to remember, Jews are, 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 are a very, very small percent, less than 1% of Germany. Very, very small percent of, of Germany. And he's worried about the Jews. Look at source number four. They are our public enemies. They do not, blas- they do not stop blaspheming our Lord Christ calling the Virgin Mary a whore, Christ the bastard, and us changelings or mere calves. If they could kill us all, they would gladly do it. They do it often, especially those who pose as physicians. Those, they sometimes, they help, they, for the devil helps to finish it in the end. They can also practice me- medicine as in French Switzerland. They administer poison to someone from which you could die in an hour, a month, a year, 10 or 20 years. They're able to practice this art, these doctors. Andy, you would not want to be a doctor in, in, that, in that world. Uh, yet, we will show them Christian love and pray for them that they may be converted to receive the Lord. 
whom they should honor properly before us. Whoever will not do this, no doubt, is a malicious Jew who will not stop blaspheming Christ, draining you dry, and if he can, killing you. Okay? What was the influence of Martin Luther's views? Okay, well, immediately in Martin Luther's own times, Judge John Frederick the First, Elector of Saxony, revoked many of the Jewish privileges. That's what Joel Zola Rosenheim complained about. Okay, um, by 1472, Philip uh, of Hesse added uh, uh, restrictions in Berlin. They, they they sacked the Jewish quarter and banned the, banned Jews from the entire country for a period of time. Okay, many of the Lutheran states were applying some of Luther, Martin Luther's things, but they didn't apply all of it. In 1570s, Pastor George Nigrinus published The Enemy Jew, and he reiterated a lot of Luther's programs, and there were others who published it as well. There was a guy named Vincent Fedelmich, who was actually a Calvinist, who reprinted on the Jews in their lives when Luther gave his nine suggestions of how to deal with the Jews, his honest advice. Well, he reprinted that in the early 17th century, in 1612, 3,000 Jews in Frankfurt were slaughtered because of that. And he actually, at one point, banished all the Jews of Frankfurt. Eventually, the nobles killed this guy. Not so much because of the Jews, because he destabilized all of Frankfurt. And the Jews became back. The rabbi of Frankfurt at that time was the Shloh. Famous Shloh HaKadosh was the rabbi of Frankfurt. He left Frankfurt and never came back again. Now, obviously, when we hear about Martin Luther today, if you look at all historians and theologians, they debate his influence on the Nazis, right? Because Martin Luther would be in Germany, and the Nazis, as we'll see and discuss in a minute or two, would quote Luther frequently, okay? The prevailing scholarly view after World War II is that Martin Luther had a tremendous effect on Nazi thought, okay? Um, 400 years uh, after it was written, right, 1537, 1937, the, on the Jews and their lives was, it was, was published and spread throughout the Nuremberg rallies. Uh, Julius Streicher, who is the head of Nazi propaganda, heavily relied on it. Um, according to Daniel Goldenkand, Bishop Martin Sass, who was one of the leading church, Lutheran churchmen, put it out in the Kristallnacht, and he said that we're only following Luther's blueprint. Okay, Sass applauded the burning of the synagogues in the coincidence of the day, writing in the introduction, on November 10th, 1938, on Luther's birthday, the synagogues are burning in Germany. Okay? The German people he urged ought to hear the words of the greatest anti-Semite of his time, the warner of his people against the Jews. Himmler speaks about Luther. In fact, the, the Lutheran churches throughout the 1940s would quote um, Luther. Yeah. Remember, Germany, even to this day, is about 60-65% Lutheran. Bavaria is mostly Catholic, but Berlin, all those areas are almost dominated by Lutherans. Um, Luther was, was quoted throughout. Look at source number five. This is Hitler's education minister. Now, guess who's meant to be the education minister in Germany in the 1930s? What do you think the curriculum was? This guy basically decided, it wasn't like he had to discuss with Congress what are you going to put in the school system? Hey, any of the public school system, the teachers didn't have a, a say. The education minister decided what everyone's going to read and the core curriculum. This is edu Hitler's education minister, Bernard Rust. Since Martin Luther closed his eyes, no such son of our people has appeared again. It has been decided that we shall be the first to witness 
his reappearance. With the Nazis comes Luther again. I think that the time is past when one may not say the names of Hitler and Luther in the same breath. They belong together. They are of the same old stamp. Now, there are certain scholars, like Johannes Wallman, who says you really can't blame Luther for the Nazis because you don't see a clear line of thought. Right? Yeah, 15th, 16th century, but you don't really see Luther in the 18th or 19th century as being having a say. Even though the head, one of the heads of the Lutheran church, a guy named Adolf Stocker, in 1878, found an anti-Semitic party, but never gained prominence. When we discuss the Nazis, of course, it would take the Great Depression to bring the Nazis in power. Um, Yui Simon Neto, um, he's a, a very prominent international communist, says the Nazis used Luther. Of course, Luther was not a friend of the Jews, but he never envisioned what the Nazis said. They just were anti-Semites anyways. Luther was very, very convenient for them, and they used him as a, a tool. That view is strongly uh, a minority view. The vast majority of people will hold not that way. Ronald uh, Berger, who is the author of Fathoming the Holocaust, a Social Problems Approach, writes that Luther is credited with Germanizing the Christian critique of Judaism and establishing anti-Semitism as a key element, as a key element of German culture and national identity. Paul Rose, who is a current professor emeritus, of history, European history at Penn State University, says that Luther created a hysterical and demonizing mentality about Jews to enter German thought and discourse and mentality that might otherwise have been absent. One of my, I usually, during the three weeks, read books on the Holocaust. I say one of my favorite books is Lucy Davidowitz's, our favorite. I'm going to say, as a child of four Holocaust, grandchild of four Holocaust stars, I say one of the best written books is Lucy Davidowitz's the war against the Jews, 1933 to 1945. She writes that both Luther and Hitler were obsessed by the demonized universe inhabited by the Jews, with Hitler asserting that, that later Luther was the real Luther, and she says it is easy to draw a line from Luther to Hitler. Ronald Lewin writes that whoever wrote against the Jews for whatever reason were always using Hitler. Okay. Professor Michael Berenbaum, who is a, who's a Holocaust scholar, he says that those who deny Luther's uh, views on, uh, uh, in, 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 how, in Nazi ideology really ignore the murderous implications of his anti-Semitism. Okay? William Nichols, a Catholic professor of religious studies, recounts at his trial, this is an unbelievable thing, at his trial in Nuremberg after the Second World War II, at the Nuremberg trials, Julius Streicher, right, the, the editor of Der Strumer, all of the famous Nazi propaganda, okay, who said, if you, his actual line, language, um, at his trial, Julius Streicher, the Nuremberg says, argued that if he's, he's standing on trial, then you should bring Martin Luther to the Nuremberg trials as well. Because all I did is what Luther said, okay, in fact, the famous line, the Jews are a misfortune, which was the, the Nazis used all the time, that line, the Jews are a misfortune, did not start with Julius Streicher. That was Luther's line. The Jews are our misfortune. Okay? Look at source number six. This is um, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, William L. Schur. It is difficult to understand the behavior of most German Protestants in the first Nazi years, unless one is aware of two things. 
their history and the influence of Martin Luther, the great founder of Protestantism, who was both a passionate anti-Semite and a ferocious believer in absolute obedience to political authority. He wanted Germany to uh, rid of the Jews. Luther's advice was literally followed four centuries later by Hitler, Goring, and Himmler. Okay. Martin Brecht, who is a historian professor emeritus at the University of Munster in Westphalia, Germany, who wrote, considered one of the, the uh, classic, most important biography of Luther. So he a- ends his chapter on an evaluation of Luther's relationship with the Jews. Um, and this is look at source number seven. Luther, however, was not involved with later racial anti-Semitism. There is a world of difference be- be- between his belief and salvation in racial ideology. Nevertheless, his misguided agitation had the evil result that Luther faithfully became one of the church fathers of anti-Semitism and thus provided material for the modern hatred of Jews, cloaking it with the authority of a reformer. Now, since the 1980s, since the 1980s, it should have been the 1910s, it would have been a different world. Okay, a lot of people's relatives would still be alive. Um, since the 1980s, uh, the Lutheran churches have <coughs> distanced themselves from Martin Luther. Okay? In 1982, the Lutheran World Federation issued a consultation saying that we Christians, this is the first distancing from Martin Luther from the Lutheran churches, 1982, uh, that we Christians must purge ourselves of any hatred of the Jews and any sort of teaching of contempt for Judaism. Okay? The... Um, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America wrote in the early 80s, over the years, Luther's anti-Jewish writings have continued to be reproduced in pamphlets and other works by neo-Nazis in anti-Semitic groups such as the Ku Klux Klan, KKK. Look at source number 8. This is Lutheran Quarterly by Johannes Wallman. The assertion that Luther's expressions of anti-Jewish sentiment have been a major and persistent influence in the centuries after the Reformation, and there exists a cont- continuity between Protestant anti-Judaism and modern racially oriented <coughs> anti-Semitism is a present widespread in literature since the world, Second World War. It has understandably become the prevailing opinion. Source number nine, the Church Council Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, 1994. We Lutherans, we who bear his name and heritage must acknowledge with pain the anti-Judaic diatribes contained in Luther's later writings, we reject this violent invective as did many of his companions in the 16th century, like Calvin, who was also one of the leaders, Zwingli, they did not have the same kind of views, and we are moved to deep and abiding sorrow at its tragic effects on later generations of Jews. Source number 10, this is on the 60th anniversary of Kristallnacht by the Bavarian Lutheran Church. It is imperative for the Lutheran Church, which knows of itself, to be indebted to the work and tradition of Martin Luther, to take seriously also his anti-Jewish utterances, to acknowledge their theological function, and to, re- and to uh, reflect on their consequences. It has to distance himself from every expression of anti-Judaism in Lutheran theology. Now, the truth is, I mentioned this with Christianity as well. When I talked about Christian anti-Semitism in that lecture, I said, it's so incredulous. You have the early church fathers, almost as a whole, some of the greatest saints in Christianity, with the most violent anti-Semitism, said to kill Jews even then. 
you have Lutherism. They now distance themselves. Could you imagine they come from this individual? How could you have a whole religion come from somebody who they themselves says had evil ideas? When you really think on a theological t- reality, it's so it's so beyond. It's like by us, our leaders are always prime examples. Even Jesus or Paul or, or Augustine, you see all their vices, and they still believe that they can have a whole religion. A Luther comes ahead and starts a new religion. They themselves in the past 30 years acknowledge he was obviously very wrong or evil. It's obviously not politically correct. They see the damage he did. But you still have people who are fervent Lutherans. I'm not here to debunk Lutheranism. I'm saying you see a difference in how the religion is formed. I can't understand in a million years how somebody could say that Martin Luther created his whole religion. We're going to believe everything he said. Because that's how we start off. And we can acknowledge the guy was a rabid anti-Semite partially or wholly responsible for the Holocaust. Now, I focus on Luther, but I want to just hit a couple other points about the Reformation. First of all, the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church had a strong response to the Reformation, otherwise known as the Counter-Reformation. Okay, and they would change internally because of it. Um, They would make some positive changes. As far as the Jews, it was mostly negative. The ghetto was one of those changes, okay? The ghetto was a response to the Reformation. They didn't want, the knowledge became a threat to the church. Now this, the church would deal with this almost till today, that when knowledge becomes a threat, they don't want intermingling, okay? And they didn't want Jews to intermingle with Catholics. They'll get, they'll spread their own ideas. Get them out of the picture. We see now with Luther, once he spread knowledge, it creates all kinds of bad ideas. In Poland, they tried to make ghettos. Now, the difference is in Poland in the 16th century, the nobles were very invested in the Jews. The next lecture will be on Polish Jewry. The Jews of Poland. They were not willing to go along, but in, in Italian cities, they almost all of the Italian cities ended up having um, ghettos. Beyond that, they started to censor books. Okay? In the 16th century, they, at first they tried to ban all Talmuds and all, and all books of Jewish literature. T- literally tried to ban them. Eventually they realized that was not practical. So what they did is they put censors in the printing presses. Most of these censors were apostate Jews. Jews who had left Judaism, who knew how to read Hebrew, and apostate Jews. So you will find many things were censored. Let's say in Alainish, there's a part of Alain that was taken out for generations. Uh, they said that we, they bowed to nothingness and we bowed to God. That was taken out. We put it back into the sitter only recently when, when the coast was clear. <laughs> right? When we're not living in a Catholic world where we can get killed or put in danger for this. Many of the, there were, not many, there were several pages of the Talmud that were censored. We have it. We have that around. But if you look at Talmuds in, in Poland, which is exclusively Catholic in the 19th century, they didn't put part of it down because they didn't want the Talmud to get burned or their lives to get, be endangered by pogroms. In the long run, besides Martin Luther, there were many positives um, and unanticipated consequences, positive consequences, of the Ref- Reformation. There was a shift in popular attitudes that, that the friars, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Dark Ages, gloomy, dark, right, they had portrayed the Jews as demonic sons of devils, right? <coughs> abusers of the host, um, nothing to do. The Puritans, we will first say, but the Protestants, they start reading the Bible, right? Because the Catholic Church is the most dangerous book, 
was the Bible Protestantism from the beginning what do they start doing? they start reading the Bible right? this would become very very prevalent in Calvinist Protestant countries like in eventually England the Puritans were mostly Calvinists as opposed to the Anglicans um, like in other parts they would start reading the Bible they have Bible sessions weekly Bible readings right? you think they have evangelicals they read the Bible right? that comes way back they read the Bible back then also and they started reading the Bible Guess what happens when you read the Bible? You read the Bible, you hear about the Hebrews. You hear about all of these people that they never heard about. Because the Catholic Church didn't teach them about um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and everyone, Micah and everyone else. They didn't know about these people. And the actually funny thing is, these people actually start taking these Jewish names. And you start having a lot of people having the names Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jerome, Jeremiah, all these type of names. They became familiar with Jewish commentaries on the Bible, commentators on the Bible, like the Ibn Ezra and David King. Again, many of them didn't at first view the Jews as the continuation of the Hebrews, but they started having a more positive view on Jewish scriptures. Okay, um, in fact, they started going to Jews to explain Jewish scriptures, and we'll see that in certain areas an appreciation of the Jews starts increasingly to become um, popular. The, if you want to see it at the apex in Puritan society, that's what will be. In 1775, just for an example, I just brought this down, Samuel Langdon, president of Harvard, when he declared, so all remember, America is built by all of these Puritan, uh, Protestant denominations, not Luther's denominations, okay? These are Calvinists for the most part, Anglican, uh, Huguenots from France, Methodists, all Anabaptists, people who have left the mainstream of the Catholic world, right? But mostly, mostly Calvinists, mostly Puritans. Um, Samuel Lang, the president of Harvard, when he declared his election sermon delivered in 1775, the Jewish government, according to the original constitution, which was divinely established, is considered merely in a civil law was a perfect republic. The Jewish government, the Sanhedrin. Can you imagine the Catholic Church would ever say that? Never! The Jews, they had it right. Hey, Yale to this day, you know what they're, if you look at their signal, it's, a, it's Hebrew letters. So is, um, I think not Dartmouth, Brown, Brown or Dartmouth, one of two, I'm blanking out right now. It's Hebrew letters. Okay? Some of the, the Ivy League universities, they, they wanted to make Hebrew first language instruction. We'll discuss America, when they discuss what should be the language of the land, some of the early Puritans actually pushed for Hebrew. <laughs> now, it didn't win because they all spoke English, so English won, right? It would be pretty radical to change them all to Hebrew speakers. But they were so infused with this Bible-loving of the Jews, many of the early Puritans actually viewed themselves as Hebrews crossing the sea. They were infused with this appreciation for the Bible. Um, uh, you know, many of the Cromwell, uh, Cromwell, Cromwell let the Jews come back into England because of that because of this appreciation from it. If you look at the paintings of Rembrandt, many of Rembrandt's paintings are of Jews, including Menashe ben Israel, who is the leading sage of Amsterdam. Okay? Moreover, as they start to see Jews as people, not just sons of the devil, to quote John Christensen, and all the other early Catholics in Augustine, right, who, were, who were evil and you know, killed Christ killers, as they start to see Jews as people, um, they start to take him out of these, all these magical beliefs. As Welsh historian, author, and professor Sir Keith Thomas has persuasively argued the fierce Protestant campaign against the Catholic Church. Because remember, Protestants came violently against the Catholic Church. 
they mock the Catholic Church for being outlandish, for, for, for worrying about miracles and pilgrimages and devotion to saints, right? So they made the church look ludicrous. Well, if the church, one of the things the church said that Jews are all these evil creatures, they had horns, and they came, they stole the host in the middle of the night, and they had blood, you know, they had, they had blood libels, which we discussed at length. We don't really find blood libels in the Protestant countries, because they looked at it as just some hocus-pocus thing of the church. Right? It demystified the Jews in the eyes of many of these countries. So as mentioned, in America, in the Netherlands and England, Jews start getting government positions. For the first time, Jews are starting to be viewed as, 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 um, as you know, normal. Calvinist Netherlands in particular. We'll discuss the Amsterdam community. That was because of the Calvinists. England, by 1697, Jews are, exp- are uh, allowed into the London Stock Exchange. Okay? Many of the investors of, 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 of in Amsterdam in England would be Jews because they're accepted. They were, they were viewed as um, people. Right? Beyond that, the Reformation had another startling effect. And perhaps this was the main thing, that the Christian world would no longer be whole. The Pope of all people won an all-encompassing Christian world. One viewpoint, one ideology. The minute, the minute you start saying there's different approaches, or there are other things we'll have to tolerate, We'll tolerate. We're going to get more toleration for others. You see, a lot of the canons and edicts were uh, understanding of toleration. We'll tolerate other people amongst us because the Catholic Church didn't tolerate other people amongst them. Once we're already tolerating this kind of Protestant, because the Protestants didn't have one opinion, once you start putting the Bible in the hands of millions, you know, Catholicism to this day, there's about 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, they all in theory hold the same thing. There's no differences amongst them. Now, majority of them today, especially in the Western world, don't follow a thing of Catholicism, <laughs> right? But if you want to know what Catholicism is, you know, it's what the Pope says. That's what Catholicism is. Now, do you want to know if they all follow Catholicism? No, they don't. But Protestantism, maybe you put the Bible in the hands of that. You have all kinds, you have so many sects and splinter groups in different churches. There are more, more churches than people in some places, okay? And they all have different names. So once you tolerate this church and this church, well, guess what else are you going to tolerate? You mean tolerate the Jews as well. Right, we can live with them. They're different like this. People are different. So the first time that Protestant Reformation, because that, it would also allow the Jews to be more um, tolerant. This would have um, reverberations to our very own day. It's not a surprise that the greatest uh, supporters of Israel in this country are not Jews for the most part. They're Christian Zionists. You know, the biggest lobby. And these are children of children of Calvinists for the most part. Right? These, are, these are the descendants of the Puritans, the Evangelicals. I'm not saying they have only good intentions. Some do, some don't. <laughs> right? But this would be unfathomable. Like somebody asked me this shop, this is an unbelievable question as we enter. I had a, a Jew who's ate by my, my lunch, very, very secular guy, Stanford guy, very bright guy, high-tech guy, you know, not observant, and because he's very liberal, he had a little bit of a liberal view on Israel as well. So we're talking about Israel. I mean, we, we, I brought up Christian Zionists, and he said something like this. He said, aren't you bothered that there are people who support Israel mean mostly only, or mostly or only because they view it as a mandate from the Bible? Doesn't that bother you that that's the reason they support Israel? Wouldn't you like that they would support Israel because of its own merit? That they support Israel? So I said, my dear friend, one-third of the United Nations hates us and hates Israel based on their theology. One third of these Muslim countries hates our guts and they'll never change that because of theology. If you have a few million Christians in the United States 
that love us, or love is love because of theology, I'll take it. <laughs> and that's what the Protestant Reformation is the good part. The next lecture, it's going to be after Passover, so I'm going to do the laws of Pesach Monday night. The next lecture after Passover, the Jews of Poland. Thank you.